This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. Welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. My name is Greg. Once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here with us today on our growing California-based podcast. And we have a great guest this week. I wanted to jump right in. Um, before we jump right in with Julie Mastrini, remember though to subscribe, to like, to follow the podcast on all of your favorite podcatchers and platforms, whether that's Apple, Google, Spotify, even Rumble and YouTube on the occasion where I can actually upload something to YouTube that doesn't get taken down or threatened. But at any rate, oh yeah, and also Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at California Liberty Project, and then we have the Twitter handle as well. But let's jump right in with our guest this week. My guest is Julie Mastrini, and Julie has a really interesting story and backstory to her life. I've become familiar with her work um, from hearing her story on Buck Johnson's Counterflow podcast, um, some really interesting podcasts there. And Julie is a writer. Um, an Orthodox Christian, which I hope to discuss, really interesting stuff there. And she is also the director of Media Bias Ratings um, over at All Sides, which is a news service that you should definitely check out. And she also has a Substack, I believe that's the Mystic Sisters. And she is a former California resident, which is uh, interesting. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. But without further ado, um, Julie, I want to thank you very much for joining the California Liberty Project podcast. Thank you for having me. I was happy to get the invite. Yeah, it was really interesting hearing some of your story on Buck's podcast. And that's, again, how I became familiar with what your story has been. I think there are a lot of cool elements um, that kind of mesh right in nicely with with this podcast and what we often talk about here, Um, kind of liberty-minded politics, as well as some... uh, some more spiritual and kind of kind of moral things, um, even even weaving in religion, and then of course your experience in California. So, if you don't mind, I mean, you've had this really interesting journey. Um, I know it was from kind of left winger and socialist to libertarian and to wherever you are today. You know, however you would classify that. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more about your journey, as much as you want to share, and how does that tie in with? Um, with the liberty movement and and kind of where you are then right right now today, yeah, um, it's definitely a long story um, because it really spans. Perfect. Yeah, it spans my whole like um, early twenties up till now, and uh, it really starts out with me becoming politicized by uh, the student loan debt issue, going to college. And um, a lot of young people today are feeling that our system is unjust. You know, why do I have to go into so much debt just to be able to make a living eventually, right? And that really kind of radicalized me when I was in college. And then, you know, when you're in college, you're surrounded by leftists who are going to reinforce those beliefs. So I got into my sort of political thought in college um, and became kind of like a feminist socialist, I would say. Um, You know, I thought capitalism was unjust and I, uh, you know, got involved with like women's rights movement, things like that. And, uh, and so, and then after college I moved to California and 
uh, well, actually, if I back up a little bit, I met my first libertarian at university um, and I was at a Democratic Socialist of America meeting. They're like the uber lefties. Um, I, didn't, Ooh, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. Who, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I was a part of that club <laughs> right. and, um, right. and I didn't know what they really, truly were. And a libertarian showed up and he started debating the professor that was our advisor. And I was like, huh, this guy's really interesting. I've never heard these perspectives before. And I don't even really understand what he's saying. Like I, I had the self-awareness to know that there was a lot that I didn't <laughs> know in the realm of right. political thought. And I was like, huh. So I started messaging my best friend's boyfriend because he was a libertarian. And I was like, what do libertarians think about this? What do they think about that? And he sent me a book. It was um, like libertarianism, what everyone needs to know by Jason Brennan. I still remember it. And at that nice. time I was exploring libertarianism and starting to kind of undo some of my thinking around like economics and the economic system and being like, okay, you know, maybe markets are good, this and that. Um, I got a job in California working for a left-wing advocacy organization. So as I'm driving to California in the car with my dad and my sisters, they're going to drop me off. I'm reading this libertarian book. And by the time I land in California, I'm like, I think I'm a libertarian, but I just got here to nice. do this left-wing job. <laughs> So, right. So I was the kind transformation of, was complete. Yeah. Well, I was kind. Of, so I was kind of the weirdo at my company because I was like the weird um, libertarian girl, but I was a left libertarian. So I still aligned with the people at my company on uh, social issues, and I was still okay. a feminist and all of these things. And this was in the Bay Area, and then you know I kind of immersed myself in the Bay Area culture. I moved up to San Francisco. Uh, I really started to, you know, explore the cult, the millennial culture there. Um, and I, I, what I really discovered is um, there was a huge contrast between San Francisco and my small town, rural, Western Pennsylvanian hometown where everybody was Catholic and, you know, everybody, you know, is monogamous and gets married and forms families and they're just like humble people. Whereas San Francisco was this sure. whole other bucket of, of a social uh, culture, right? Um, it's yeah, very yeah. <laughs> feminist. Um, it's very careerist. It's very uh, LGBT friendly. It's just a totally different environment. And, you know, I was like, at first I was like, so happy to be somewhere that aligned with all my beliefs. And I do think that actually mm -hmm. people disagree with me on this, but I think that the culture and possibly even a lot of the policies of San Francisco are very libertarian because the whole ethos there is around freedom. Um, just like being who you are and pursuing freedom and freedom is your highest value. And I really lived that for many years with freedom as my highest value. But that ended up getting me into some trouble. Um, you know, I started to realize that there were problems in the culture of San Francisco that were downstream of freedom being the highest value. So um, right. And, uh, so, some, there are many examples, but some of them are, um, the, uh, drug problem in San Francisco, um, both among housed and unhoused people. You have homeless people on the streets, literally shooting up on the streets, open air drug markets, yes. but there's also a drug problem in the millennial culture of people who like have jobs and housing and they're just, you know, partying and doing a lot of drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, I started to think that, um, you know, libertarians didn't really have a solution for the problem of like street crime and homelessness, um, because to, you know, forcibly remove a homeless person or someone doing drugs on the street would be coercive force. 
And so I started to think, well, maybe that's not a bad trade-off because, you know, I'm a five foot three female and I don't feel safe on these streets. And if I had a baby, I certainly wouldn't feel safe on these streets. And I might have to acquiesce some of my libertarian (laughs) ethos in order to solve this problem. Right. Um, So things like that started coming into view. And then um, the social problems of San Francisco as well. So a lot of people there are polyamorous. Open relationships are huge amongst millennials in, I'd say now, almost every major city, but certainly San Francisco. And so I explored those ideas, didn't really act on them, but had a boyfriend who wanted the possibility of him being with other women to always be a part of our relationship. And again, that's a freedom as the highest value thing. He really valued freedom and he didn't believe that a monogamous relationship would like preserve his rights or whatever in the appropriate way. And so I really started to realize that the liberal sexual ethos of the city was harmful, especially to women, definitely for family formation. And you'll see that there aren't a lot of children in San Francisco for myriad reasons, but I think uh, the liberal sexual ethos actually uh, hurts family formation. Um, Women need paternity certainty in order to feel safe having a child, they need to know that a man has committed his resources, time and energy to just her and not to multiple women. Um, sure. And then there's obviously the technological aspects that allow for us to have that level of freedom, birth control, things like that. Um, but yeah, so a lot of things were happening just through experiencing the culture of San Francisco that made me actually start to reconsider my left libertarian beliefs. Um, And those are just really a few examples. A lot of things happened that made me reconsider my open borders stance. You know, I realized that the only place I was truly safe was in the walls of my apartment (laughs) and that those borders kept me safe. Um, uh, And yeah, so that's kind of how I started to undo my thinking and kind of move towards um, just a different way of thinking and actually having a more spiritual view as well. My, my political and spiritual journey are definitely enmeshed. Um, I started to realize Christians were right about a lot of things <laughs> that they'd always said that I always knew they'd said, and I never knew why they said those things. And then through time and experience, it started to come into focus. So as you were, uh, as you were describing that, um, there's a lot there that I wanted to, to comment on, uh, a lot of interesting stuff that you mentioned. But one of the things is that culture of San Francisco, right? Um, as far as what was going on there, you know, kind of the, a lot of the Im- immorality, a lot of the licentiousness. And I would almost argue that that seems like it's more libertinism than, than libertarianism. I mean, not to quibble or whatever, but... Um, yeah, kind of serving serving oneself, you know, putting the individual as like the highest um, the highest good, kind of serving the needs or the wants or the whims of the individual. Um, that that definitely seems like super libertine. And then I was almost thinking, like with your um, Pennsylvania connection, it's kind of funny. It's almost upside down. Tell me what you think about this. But in a way, you know, some of those Amish communities seem to me to be the most libertarian in America. And sometimes a place like San Francisco or maybe a Berkeley or an Oakland or someplace like that might be one of the most repressive. And what I mean by that is it's almost the, in some senses, the inverse. People are kind of doing what they want and fulfilling their own like um, base desires and whatnot. But yet they're living kind of under a a large government or they all, um, they're all at least paying lip service to the state. Right. And, um, and uh, the regime, you know, taking care of them versus like a very kind of, I guess, culturally conservative community like the Amish 
they're just kind of living outside of the state. You know, they're almost like clear pilled, like the state is there, but they're doing their own thing. Um, they're just kind of, they're just kind of chugging along doing what they might've done 50, hundred, 150 years ago. Um, I don't know. I just thought of that almost inversion or whatever. Um, but I definitely hear you as far as, you know, people kind of serving their own, um, serving their own wants and their own, their own needs and whatnot. And, um, it sounds like after a while that became very unfulfilling, right? And that, um, you know, it doesn't really lead to, uh, to happiness or fulfillment. I mean, is that right? Did that kind of trigger, it sounds like you started to kind of uh, drift away from that thinking or, or maybe some of the people in that community through time? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it really is, it really does feel like Pennsylvania and the Bay Area are kind of opposites in a way, but actually California and Pennsylvania both have big states, big state governments. Um, True. You're not wrong that the Amish sort of live in a way that's um, by their own rules, let's say. Um, Not sure if that's true legally, but um, certainly culturally. And yeah, I think that, I mean, there's obviously a big difference between left and right libertarianism. It um, seems that um, libertarianism unmoored from uh, any sort of uh, social morality that constricts your behavior is particularly bad. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it and really what it is, is it's I realize it's not generative. Um, you hear the word yeah. degenerate a lot, but I never really understood what that meant until I watched people live out. Um, ideas or moral codes that then were not uh, generating new life, um, (laughs) to be honest, um, because the ideas that permeate San Francisco and that people are living out, um, they're they're not forming families, they're not having children. uh, And and that was really a big kind of, well, I guess, black pill for me. Um, And then also just, um, you know, there were, there were, uh, a lot of things going on around like a denial of reality, like um, especially in the strain of feminism that is prevalent in San Francisco. I remember another big moment for me was when uh, James Damore came out with his Google memo and he was explaining why there aren't more female engineers and how women desire more flexibility in the workplace and various things that are actually very specific to the female gender that are all tied up in biology because women have children and that's why they desire more flexible career paths, things like that. And everybody was the media and really everybody in the Bay area was calling him sexist. And um, that was kind of a wake up moment for me where I was like, you know, there's this denial of like biological reality that goes on in the Bay area where, um, you know, the men there are not, protective of women, which I think is why we saw so much street crime, um, because there's kind of this idea that, again, it's kind of the individualism idea that everyone can take care of themselves, including women, and that we don't need any sort of protective structure for the weaker and more vulnerable in society. Um, but then there was there's also a weird side of it where um, the idea of protecting the weak and vulnerable in society is warped, where it's like, oh, we can't, you know, remove um, homeless drug addicts from the streets because, you know, they are weak and vulnerable. We need to like, it's, it's just this weird like distortion of what it means to be caring and what it means to, um, protect people and to serve their best interest. Um, 
And I think with something like the like non-aggression principle kind of at the center of the ideas and then also freedom is the highest value, you just you can't create protective structures that are good for people. Yes. And almost with the non-aggression principle, which of course, you know, I adhere to, I believe in that. Um, I think really as most Christians do, the thing is it's a bare minimum, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know, maybe a sine qua non, but it's like, okay, it's kind of the bare minimum stakes of having a society, but then what, you know, dot, dot, dot. It's like, you have to go well beyond that to have a just society. That's not it, you know, for the polity, I think. And that that's where maybe a lot of libertarians make, make, big mistakes in in my opinion um they kind of leave things right there and i think you made a really interesting point as well about uh degenerate versus generate um and i think that's a really well taken point because when people follow their own base urges whether that's um doing fentanyl or drugs or uh sexual licentiousness whatever it is we can see that it it degenerates or it, it damages their body, right? And it's counter to the natural order. It's not healthy for for who they are as a, as a full human. And we can see that because obviously the people laying on the street, either diseased or succumbing to their demons, drug addiction, for example, which is so prevalent in California and some of our other big, you know, big cities around the country, but those people are not healthy. They're not happy they're, they're degenerating their nature. You know, they're, they're essentially losing some of what it is to be fully human, which is their reason, you know, which is going right hand in hand with, um, you know, Christianity, even St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, you got to retain your reason to be uh, fully human. It's one of the main things, obviously, that differentiates us from the animals. Um, so that was really interesting when you mentioned that, because, you know, people do, I throw their term around, you know, degenerate, yeah, that's a good point. What does it actually mean for us? Right. And even on the issue of um, drug addicted, you know, the drug addicted homeless that are I, a lot of people in San Francisco also are really good at missing the key, the core issue. So they think that the problems with the drug addicted homeless is uh, that there's not enough housing. And yes. it's like, well, maybe there isn't enough housing. I mean, I lived with six roommates and I lived in a dining room at one point, you know. OK, but. <laughs> That's not why some people are living on the street. Like if I really couldn't have found a place to live in that city, I would have moved to another city. These are people that can't even muster that. They are living on Correct. the streets. And um, and there's uh, they're not willing to admit that it is a drug problem largely that leads people mm -hmm. to living that way. Okay. And then well, how do drug problems, you know, peel back a layer of a drug problem? What's under that? Usually childhood trauma. Okay, peel back a layer of that. Where's childhood trauma come from? You know, uh, toxic family structures, right? So I never understood why Christians and conservatives were always talking about like family values and they valued family so much. And I, st and I started to realize that, you know, when you don't emphasize healthy families, uh, you do get traumatized individuals who on a long enough timeline might end up down this path, right? Uh, but it felt right. like people were not willing to talk about that and also the whole, you know, freedom is the highest value and then denial of biological reality components would make people deny what a healthy family structure even is or not even think about what it might be. So yeah. um, the, these are all like interlocking issues of uh, th that I, I found. I, I found like all the issues there to ultimately be related. And then it seemed like Christianity was one of the only uh 
Like I started to realize a lot of these weren't political problems or they were, but they were downstream of spirituality. Um, yes. Ideas about, you know, what even are human beings? What are we made for? What brings us meaning in life? Like these higher order questions. How were we created? I, I One of the things that I realized also is that we can't design ourselves. Um, we can try. Mm -hmm. People certainly are with transhumanism and things like that. But there were sure. ways that I was designed that I didn't choose. So when I tried to explore, you know, polyamory, I realized it was so spiritually hurtful to me because I'm not designed for that. Um, I, right. I, and I can't just get over my jealousy or, you know, go to enough therapy to make myself feel okay with this relationship structure because it's actually not what God designed. Um, yes. And it was my pride that made me think that I could just like transform myself into something that I'm not meant to be. So uh, this is also one of the, path that I followed into sort of thinking about these like higher level questions about, uh, you know, Christianity really. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and all these things are super important. They're tied in with spirituality as, as you kind of were hinting at, they're not just political problems, right? Um, if there's someone who's out on the streets, um, and we're always led to believe, you know, it's kind of like that movie, the pursuit of happiness with Will Smith, you know, I think the left would like us to believe that, that it's just, corporate downsizing or capitalism that leads like this wonderful man who's a, an accountant, you know, he's going to be living in bathrooms of a BART station with his kids because of capitalism or something like that. And I think your point is well taken that many times these are, are broken people that come from broken homes. It's not just a matter of, darn, my apartment rent's too high. I'm going to be homeless. It really is, you know, and those people might have been engineers or accountants, you know, five or 10 years ago, but it's, it's a spiritual uh, sickness, I think, in many cases that leads to addiction or leads to these problems. And then that's that spirals downward. I think that's that's a really good point. And another thing I was thinking of when you were when you were just um, talking there is that a lot of times these people who have such sad lives, they're they're living out on the streets, they don't have a home, they're drug addicted or you know have mental health issues. And it occurred to me that, you know, that the family is the primary and first and most important community, right? That any of us have. And these poor people have in some cases been abandoned by family or they've damaged family relationships. And then so often in big cities, or at least with, with left liberals, there's this idea that, you know, maybe the state or literally the state of California or the city, you know, some level of government should take care of these people um, as opposed to the first line of defense and the first primary community being, being the family, um, which I think it's very sad when that, when that family structure breaks down and these people who are clearly wounded and suffering and have made terrible choices in some cases when they don't have family to, to go to. Yeah. You um, really do see the, like the de-emphasis on family, and family, I mean, the term fam family values, I don't know if that's the right term, but, but <laughs> from really, the 80s, yeah, yeah, from yeah. the 80s. But like, you see, the de emphasis on it is, um, yeah, it, it totally creates a vacuum where then the state has to t step in and take care of people, right? And it's yeah. feminism plays into this too, because, um, you'll see a lot of women, single women tend to vote for like bigger government programs. Um, yes. because if, you know, they're, they, you know, in, in the past there was, a an emphasis on men and women, like working together to take care of one another. Um, and yes. now with the idea of like 
atomized individualism and which is very made very possible through capitalism for us to kind of be these atomized worker cells and just take care of ourselves. Um, there is that shadow side to it where uh, we now uh, maybe feel like we don't need one another or the, the trade-offs are too great and I'm just going to take care of myself. And then you see people not forming families um, and it's all kind of um, just weakening that building block of society. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's a fair point. I mean, capitalism itself can lead to that. I think capitalism is an amazing, you know, and capitalism's kind of in scare quotes, but at least the free market is this incredible vehicle for people to interact with one another. And that can be a tool for good, or that can be a tool for, for evil, depending on what it is. And so this is where I, I would depart from maybe Ayn Rand and some of the objectivists where it's like, yeah, greed is not good. Capitalism on its own is is amoral. It's just an incredible, you know, free market system um, that can lead to this great interaction between free people, and they can choose to do good with that, or they can choose to appeal to human vices and whatnot. But so, let me ask then: through your time in in San Francisco, it, it sounds like did that begin contributing to? Um, a little bit of a spiritual awakening for you or spiritual uh, change in yourself, um, you know, coming back to Christianity after maybe many years? Yeah. And I would, I would say that um, it was through sort of observing these um, social ills that Christianity seemed to speak to um, some of the dogma of, of the church actually I realized was trying to prevent some of these issues that I was seeing in San Francisco. Um, and then there was also the issue of community. Um, I never really felt like I had a super strong community in San Francisco. And I felt like when I was growing up in a town of 3000 people, I could rely on my neighbors and everybody knew each other. And there, you kind of had no choice but to be friendly and and have goodwill towards one another because you knew you were going to see that person again. There's only 3,000 people in the town, sure. right? So you have this incentive to act well and to behave well and, and uh, be useful to one another. Whereas in the city, since it's so transient and people aren't there for the long haul, they're not invested in their property. They don't even own their property. Yeah. They're not going to be there long term. They, I, I can't tell you how many people I met that I was like, maybe this will become a good friend. And then I never saw them again, hmm. right? Like, just there's just such a high population that it's hard to really forge a community, uh, let alone a community of like like-minded people or people who like understand your history and background. You know, people are from all over the place, um, different value systems. Just um, it, it, it's hard to feel like um, you're really rooted there in a place like San Francisco. And I'm sure, sure this is true of almost any city. Yeah. Um, so I started to think you know, okay, Christians seem to have answers for some of these social ills that I'm identifying. And um, churches are um, communities of people who share morality, values, you know, spiritual practices. I had tried to, I subconsciously, I think, been trying to uh, explore other avenues of like experiencing regular community. Like I'm a fire dancer. So I was involved in kind of like the circus arts scene in San Francisco. And every Sunday we would meet up at the park and practice. And it was like almost like church because we did feel that like our expression through circus arts was um, kind of a spiritual practice. And we were meeting on Sundays and it was the same group of people every time, but it always felt like something was hollow and that my connections with people were 
hollow or like lacking some sort of deeper substance that I had experienced like in my hometown growing up. And I don't know if that was just because we had very different value systems or I ended up thinking it was something like deeply spiritual actually. And um, so my sister and I started, my twin sisters with me kind of on this whole journey, we started being like, okay, we need a community of like-minded people, um, a place to root down. And um, we were turning towards Christianity, but we were still kind of, clinging to our sort of new age Buddhist spiritual, not religious beliefs and figuring out what we needed to keep or discard from that part of our lives. So we ended up deciding to leave San Francisco um, for many reasons, you know, things that I've discussed here and more, Mm -hmm. the crime, never going to be able to own property, all these things. And um, we moved, actually, we ended up being invited by a group of artists to this uh, church I'm going to put that in quotes in upstate New York, um, a church of artists. um, And it was very like pan religious. So they were like, all religions are the same, you know, it's all, and it was, it it was very new age. And we lived up there for six months um, and thought, okay, maybe this is the community that we need or that's good for us. And it's a little closer to our home. And, and then I really just had this realization that if the community, because, well, let me back up this church the community around it had almost the same issues as San Francisco. People were had drug problems. There was the polyamory. Huh. People weren't forming families. All, the same things were going on. Um, unhappy relationships. Um, the hedonism. And I was like, okay, so this is a church. It's not just about finding a church or a community, right? It has yeah. to be a Christ-centered community. And once I realized that, I went off down my Christian rabbit hole Um which is a whole other sort of story. But um, that's kind of how I came back to Christianity really in a nutshell. So Julie, it sounds like there was this um, big element of uh, like syncretism. Like you went through a lot of those syncretistic kind of rabbit holes, you know, where we're all part of the same hole and everything is circular and, um, you know, no faith is more truthful than another. Um, but then you started coming back to to the truth of Christianity, um, which definitely sounds like an, an interesting uh, story. And I know from from previous things you shared that it sounds like you went into um, Orthodox Christianity. And um, what kind of brought you into to Orthodox Christianity? Um, so it was actually a pretty, I don't want to say long journey, but kind of, because once I realized I needed a Christian church, I started to think, okay, well, like, where is my church home? You know, where 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 can I start going to church? So I went back to... I was raised Roman Catholic. I'm Italian, so that makes sense. Um, uh-huh. So I started going sure. back, but I had, you know, dropped Roman Catholicism as a teen because it just it didn't really keep me, you know. And I started going back to Roman Catholic churches as an adult. And something that struck me is that the same issues I saw when I was younger were still present. And what I mean by that is I didn't feel a sense of community, and people would kind of like. Um, receive the Eucharist and then just leave. And there wasn't like mingling afterwards or whatever it may be. And granted, this is me going to Roman Catholic churches in the Northeast. Maybe it's different, like in the South or different places. Um, My friend Mm -hmm. had converted to Anglican Catholicism. And I was just floored when I visited her church because they had a coffee hour afterwards and everybody hung out, had a good time and um, got to know one another. And I was like, man, uh, sure. Why don't these Roman Catholic churches have this? And my sister even called a couple of churches. We were living in upstate New York at the time and asked if they did coffee hour. And they were like, what? Like they didn't even know what we were talking about. Um, so um, 
there was that. And then also mm-hmm. the issue, I, I, I always felt that the Catholic mass and I, this was the same when I was a uh, young and then when I was an adult exploring it again, and I just felt the mass was not, um, keeping me like it, it felt something about it just felt, um, off in ways I can't really even explain. Just like, almost like it was a, it's a choppy service, um, where there's like, and I only know to say that because after experiencing the Orthodox liturgy, which is the whole thing is sung and it doesn't feel like there's a break in it. Like it feels more whole than the Catholic mass. And these are like, you know, post Vatican two, you know, masses I'm attending. I understand that maybe things used to be different. Sure. Um, right. But yeah, so the, the Catholic churches just weren't really, yeah, doing it for us. And so then I started dating a guy who was raised evangelical Protestant. I knew nothing about Protestantism and um, started dating this guy. And he was also kind of on a journey right. of trying to figure out where his church home was. And so he took me to like Baptist churches and non-denominational churches. And I was like, well, this certainly isn't it. You know, this is so far from, this doesn't even feel like church. It feels like a Ted talk with a rock show. So, uh, <laughs> right. and then I, I the had altar? to dig into the, yeah, exa- exactly. Uh, one of the churches, yeah. the altar was like pushed off to the side and they never even used it. And I was like, I don't feel like I went to church. I feel like I went to a Bible talk. And so, yeah, yeah. 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 And and I just had no idea, like, how did this come about? How, what is this? You know, and I started looking into the history and Martin Luther and Sola Fide and Sola Scriptura and all these like Protestant doctrines that had emerged um, during the Reformation. I had to look into all of this stuff. Um, it just, I learned sure. so deeply about the different denominations in a way that I had never known um, just through the process of trying to figure out where I belonged or where I wanted to be. And then, um, it really right. was that a lot of people on Twitter and some people in my real life were recommending orthodoxy. And I had never even heard of it before. I had no idea what it was and um, ended up attending, uh, or I ended up finding an Orthodox church. Um, and just, you know, the first one I went to was very rural and there weren't a lot of people there. And I was like, I don't know about this, but it was really just the demographics uh-huh. of the area. It was a dying parish. Um, but the church mm-hmm. was absolutely stunning. It was beautiful, which really drew me in. Cause one of the things that kept me in San Francisco for so long was the beauty of the place. Um, Cause it really helps you feel close to God. Um, and so I really wanted a church that preserved beauty, which was something I didn't see in Protestant churches yeah. at all. And um, so then, yeah, eventually found an Orthodox uh, cathedral near my hometown. And I loved the priest and the community was warm and welcoming. And it was just it seemed like everything I was looking for. And this is a little nitty gritty, but interestingly, it's a Carpatho Russian church and they were Catholic at one point in their history. They were Orthodox and then they were under the Pope and now they're Orthodox again. And so there's some slight like Catholic influences there that I think helped me to like feel more at home. I think if I had just gone straight into an Eastern Orthodox church, I might've felt like it was too foreign. Mm -hmm. It was almost like this church was perfectly positioned to kind of draw me in. And and since then I've gone to Greek churches and, um, uh, Rokor churches. Right. And, and I understand, um, you know, the icons don't look as Western. Right. And that's, I'm, that's more comfortable for right. me now, but I really think I had to find this church that had like the slight Catholic influence for me to go, oh, okay, you know, I'm Orthodox and I feel comfortable here. And this seems like the right thing. That's really interesting. No. Um, 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, this is, it's interesting to me because um, where I live nearby, there's a Greek Orthodox church. Then there's also, um, I think, a Coptic Orthodox church. So as an Orthodox Christian, could you, could you walk in and attend a liturgy or a service at, at kind of any Orthodox church? Or does it, is it um, specifically kind of assigned to, you know, one of the kind of, I don't want to say national Orthodox churches, but you know what I mean, like Greek or Russian Orthodox? Could you attend yeah. any of those uh, divine liturgies? We call them jurisdictions. That's the term for like the different, and they're all are often tied okay. to an, eth- an ethnic group, right? Which was weird for me coming into Orthodoxy because there's no like Italian Orthodox, right? <laughs> I'm Italian. I mean, <laughs> I guess right. Rome used to be Orthodox right. uh, per our understanding of the schism. But um, uh, yeah, so right, I, it, right. yeah, so right. so it was kind of. Um, uh, so uh, the answer is actually no. It depends on if they're in communion. Um, and I'm not an expert okay. on this, but um, like I could go. Oh, sorry. Actually, the answer is yes, you can attend any service or liturgy, um, but you might not be able to receive mm-hmm. the sacraments at that parish, depending on if the jurisdiction is in communion with the church that you are a part of or were chrismated in. Um, so uh, that can be a little confusing. Um, and I still sometimes have to do research to figure out if I'm traveling and I'm visiting a church. Like I recently was in Texas visiting a Rocor church and I was like, can I take communion there? I don't know. And we had to look it up and okay, yeah. uh, we can, you know, the churches are in communion. So, um, uh, and I can receive uh, at a Greek church and an Antiochian church. Um I'm not sure about Coptic. Mm. So it, yeah, it, there's um, high levels of, Interesting. Um, in the hierarchy, um, there are uh, some uh, issues that I'm not well-versed on as to like why that is or um, who is in communion with who. who. Um, uh, but that, yeah, yeah that's, uh, and like a Catholic wouldn't be able to take communion at an Orthodox church. But I believe, maybe don't right. quote me on this, an Orthodox could take communion at a Catholic church um, because the Catholics recognize our sacraments. Yeah. Don't I should quote know me on this. That, I should, as a Catholic, I, yeah. yeah, I should know the answer to that, but I, I don't think that I do fully. I should be clear on it too. There's Latin rite Catholicism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are different rites in the Catholic church too, which is interesting. There's Eastern rite and Latin rite, um, right. you know, kind of Latin or Roman Catholicism, but yeah, no, I, f- I find all this like really interesting. And what you were saying too about even the, the structure of the mass, I know that's um, certainly a, a common critique. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of Catholics have this dialogue too internally about kind of the Novus Ordo mass, you know, coming out in, I think it was 1970 in the wake of Vatican II reforms. And then it seems like lately there have been a lot of uh, younger people that have been, you know, people call them trad cats, but going back to um, the actual mass in Latin, kind of the pre-Novus Ordo mass, the more traditional um, mass. And I know there's been a big movement there too, to really get more in touch with um, maybe what they perceive as, you know, really spiritual aspect, the beauty of the old um, mass tradition and whatnot. Um, So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Certainly, there's been a big discussion, at least among younger and even middle-aged Catholics uh, of late that I've, you know, been a part of, or at least um, part- partaken in, you know, and heard and kept up with. Um, so it's it, that's a really interesting topic too, even within the Catholic Church, uh, as is also outside the church too. 
So I think it's really interesting that your journey obviously um, has has kind of interwoven both the political and the spiritual. But then again, that shouldn't be a big surprise, right? Because you know we we talked earlier about there being vacuums and whatnot, and it's like for an individual, you know, we don't want to create a vacuum. There's always like a God shaped hole, you know, in our in our heart, in our mind, it seems like. And maybe that's some of what we're seeing in society as well as our society in general, I would say, um, maybe not even controversially, but I'd say it becomes less and less spiritual. I mean, is that a fair, absolutely. very general statement, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, our society in America is largely secular and materialist. And it just, to anyone who's, you know, maybe you're conscious or unconscious of it, but it, it always felt to me like something was missing in our culture, just something deeper and under the surface level, let's say, or above the surface level, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it just always felt like something that, you know, Americans are very, um, we, we work like crazy. We're very focused on, you know, the next purchase, right? Are we a bigger house, a bigger car, like whatever it is. These are like common criticisms of American culture. Um, but when you're, I think it's gotten so much worse, like even through my lifetime, like I was growing up as a kid in the nineties and like the TV shows had like Christian themes of like forgiveness and redemption. And like, that was like baked into our media and like, that's increasingly absent. Um, uh, we talked about yes. the sort of like uh, lack of emphasis on family, um, things like that are just being chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. And so I, you're right. There are a lot of young people now, I think who are recognizing that and then going back to the, you know, traditions of the so-called like old world, um, which are yeah. actually eternal, uh, I think, you know, practices, things that are pointing to what's unchanging. Um, sure. And what is a really like a rock that we can rest on um, because the modern world changes at, a whiplash speed and it's, and it's the emphasis is always on the material. And now, you know, we're yes. coming up on some really other serious, uh, you know, uh, ethical issues around transhumanism and AI and, and all these things. And without a spiritual component to your worldview and understanding and your life, um, you're just going to be missing a very important dimension of reality. Um, and it's the yes. hardest dimension to like come to terms with cause it's the unseen. Right. And um, I really yes. do think we are, you know, subject to like unseen warfare, these unseen forces that are acting upon us that we see playing out in the material world. Um, and the more that we yeah. can recognize that and then like orient ourselves towards the good, the true and the beautiful, which isn't easy, um, but at least right. to try, um, we can be better equipped to navigate all these modern forces. Because it really in my 20, when I was in San Francisco, like what was, it's not that I had no spirituality, um, but I was really missing a larger understanding of it that would have helped me to stay away from some very bad things, but I just, I had to learn. Yeah, no, well, there's so much there. I mean, this, this total societal, almost ignoring or pretending that the metaphysical doesn't exist in some ways, a lot of us who have been, you know, critical of the enlightenment, and it's certainly not only me, but a lot of people call it the endarkenment. <laughs> But, you know, coming out of like science and reason and the church of reason, the French revolution and all that. But as you were hinting at, it's like, what about these metaphysical things? You know, goodness, truth, beauty. 
um, reality is so much more than everything that we can just measure, right? And um, I think this poor understanding of philosophy or even metaphysics, it just, it leads us down a lot, a lot of weird paths. Um, even with, I think, transgenderism, I mean, I've spoken about it before and not in a judgmental way, but it's, it's just so strange how our society almost talks about like a, a young person being trapped in the wrong body, right? Like that doesn't even comport with certainly uh, Catholic philosophy. I probably not Orthodox philosophy either, where, you know, human beings are not just like this uh, computer machine or whatever, you know, software. We're also our hardware. So it's like we're a soul and a body married together. And um, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're just so confused as a society on so many different levels. And metaphysics is like completely ignored, right? Yeah. And it's almost the trans thing is almost weird because it's almost like they're hinting at a metaphysical reality, right? By being like, oh, the wrong, a different soul can be mismatched with a body like that's kind of what they're saying that your like soul uh -huh. and body can have a mismatch it's like they're like reaching for a metaphysical reality but the direction that it's taken in is i think um ultimately just um i mean it's like anti-creation anti-god i i mean it's it's obviously terrible and that's another example where you can see the outcomes of it when it's that belief is played out and is it generative or degenerative kind of thing. Um, so it's a really good example of just how society is going pretty off the rails um, with mm -hmm. our lack of a like traditional understanding or we, we've kind of discounted the wisdom of the ages and we're kind of uh, flailing and like making up things as we go because we think that everything that is old is regressive or needs to be discarded yes. instead of there being actual wisdom and wisdom traditions that could actually help us in the very complex and chaotic and rapidly changing modern world. Um, and I even have a theory that the transgender, so Orthodox talk about theosis as the ultimate aim and goal of our lives, which is union with God. And, um, right. and, I think the transgender phenomenon is almost like a replace. It's like a dark anti-Christian uh, replacement for the process of theosis. You know, you have a goal, uh, you have something to aim for, right? Something that's supposed to make you more whole or holy or more perfect. Um, and, but it's a subversion of it, right? So it's like, we can see these longings yes. in the human spirit for um, perfection and holiness, but it's becoming so twisted and subverted in these ways that are ultimately harmful. And it's hard for the average modern person to see, because like you said, we, we've discarded a metaphysical framework. It's like not a part of our cultural conversation. Yes. Yeah. And I, even C.S. Lewis kind of talked about some of these things, you know, people striving toward, you, you mentioned almost comparing it to like um, the ideas of theosis and the Orthodox church, but C.S. Lewis broadly talks about, you know, wherever there's, or maybe it was Chesterton, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting which one it is, but wherever there's an appetite, you know, that's usually human beings striving towards something that God had instilled in us. So um, we have a, a want or we have an appetite for knowledge about the metaphysical. Many people do, but the question is, okay, does that lead you down the right path toward God or does it lead you down kind of a disordered understanding of what it means to be human? You know, for example, even who is it, Ray Kur Kurzweil and some of these futurists like at Google. And you mentioned kind of like transhumanism, I think before, and, and even AI, but can you download what it is to be human? Can you download a human mind? You know, are we just software? 
Are we just electromagnetic waves that carry information or is there so much more to human beings? You know, and I, I don't mean to boil it down too much or be reductive, but I think these are really important questions. Certainly uh, the big questions, what, what is a human being? You know, is it just some kind of uh, mind energy or neurons um, tied to electrons just firing? Um, or is there so much more to humans? Um, right. Obviously, very broad questions, but super important, right? Yeah. And I think, and then it's it's even like, you know, once once you are a Christian and live and swimming in this sort of toxic water of our culture, um, you not only have to wrestle with these questions that like the ones you've just brought up, um, but also then you're, it, it's like, I see a lot of Christians kind of coming to the same place that I'm at realizing a lot of our like cultural narratives are ultimately harmful and wrong. Um, but then they'll sort of um, become angry and combative and see the left or the other side as like an enemy. Right. And, and then the challenge becomes like living in a society where, you know, people are misguided and wrong and still being loving towards them and compassionate right. towards them and not like seeing them as like, your enemy or someone to like defeat and destroy. Um, so that's been another interesting part of, you know, I've gone through this sort of spiritual political journey and I'm kind of on this other side now, but even from where I'm sitting and amongst Christians or like people on the so-called right or whatever you want to call us, um, where there's these toxic inclinations, um, because, you know, people are feeling very threatened, by the secular modern science above all costs culture. And we saw this even with COVID, um, but it's like, how do you be a Christian and loving and uh, uphold all these virtues and values in the face of, you know, some very like evil things that are coming down the pipe, you know, I, I, it's just, yeah. it's a really complicated modernity is a, is a complicated space to navigate. Um, yes. And I just see it getting worse even with all the technological advancements. So yeah, and that's that's the thing. We we live among this incredible life changing technology. You know, everyone talks about you know our our phones. You know, and they hold up their phone. You know, it's like, hey, I can pull up all of human human beings' written history here. You know, basically, right? People talk about like what incredible tools we have with technology, and there's always that question where it's like, okay, are we using it to do good? Or are we using it to to not do good, to actually do evil, um, and to walk away from from God and from uh, the natural order of things, and um, that's certainly something that's going to continue. That's that's always going to be with us, right? Right, and I I'm so behind on this, but my sister and I just watched that documentary, The Social Dilemma, which I thought really illustrated how these technological tools. They're not like a bike where the bike just like sits there and then we use it and it's like a neutral object. Um, these yeah. tools, social media is manipulating us. It's, it's wants things from us and it's um, acting upon yeah. us. And so it's not like a tool in that some of these tech guys in this documentary, like these aren't actually tools, you know, they're, yeah. um, they have a, like a will or something. And then it's like, you get into spiritual questions around that where it's like, well, is that a spirit? You know, is that a demon? Like, what? what is that? Um, and right. and all, all the stuff is starting to converge. Um, there's been, you know, a lot of talk about, I think Elon Musk has been like, you know, AI is summoning the demon, right? It's like, these aren't, right. it's not technology as we've understood it. You know, the invention of the wheel or the, the bicycle or like whatever it is. Um, this is uh, much, the danger is so much more grave and uh, it's 
just very daunting to be living in the face of this. But, you know, I also, you know, I think about Gandalf and he says, you know, all you have to do is figure out what to do with the time that's given you. So <laughs> um, it's it's not for me to decide if I'm here right now, but it's, it sure is um, a lot to contemplate. Yeah, it is. And it's only going to increase too. I mean, these are more and more mm-hmm. complex tools, the technology, even Elon Musk. I mean, he kind of talks out both sides of his mouth, I think a lot of the time too. Yeah. He's got Neuralink, you know, we're going to be uploaded. Mm-hmm. We're headed toward the singularity. And, you know, these spiritual questions are going to become all the more important. Contrary to maybe what the modern world is saying, you know, like, oh, we're getting away from that. These are antiquated ideas. You know, maybe that's kind of the cliched, you know, general uh, milieu, right? But I think, and perhaps you think as well, I just think these questions are going to become that much more important as we try to sort things out as we're headed toward, God forbid, the singularity, you know, of technology, human beings fusing with with, uh, tech, essentially. Um, and what does it mean to be human fundamentally? I mean, these are the, the big questions. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to force us to have some theological understanding, right? It's kind of like yeah. how my experience in San Francisco and with libertarianism forced me in a way to have to develop some sort of theological understanding of the world or spiritual understanding of the world, right? Um, if people aren't there yet, well, we might be forced to sooner rather than later, Um and hopefully looking at some of these wisdom traditions from the ages can help. Um, but it's hard to imagine such a secular science focused society um, turning in that direction. Many people have um, in recent years, young people, um, but on to see it on like a cultural level or a mass scale, that'd be a miracle. <laughs> I hope it happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe necessary, but uh, still possibly a miracle. Um, yeah. Julie, let me let me ask you one last question before I let you go. I don't want to keep you all day, but um, it's been a fascinating conversation so far. Um, for people who are maybe coming out of, I don't want to say the left, I don't mean politically, because politics is so, it can be so base or so coarse, but maybe for people coming out of um, maybe more of a secular kind of worldview, um, maybe people that had a, a similar journey to your own. Is there like any kind of resource or really good book that could point them in the way of rediscovering Christianity um, or even a really interesting, a really good book possibly about Orthodox Christianity that just people who are curious could read? I mean, any resources there that you might, that you might point people toward? Yeah. I mean, it kind of depends where people are at because like when I was um, coming out of my more spiritual, not religious, secular sort of worldview. It was really Jordan Peterson that helped me to see that there was something to the biblical stories. Um, but oh. if you're already, you know, uh, and he's not a Christian, you know, it's, it's actually weird looking at him now from my yeah. vantage point. Um, but there were, there were two books that I read early on in my like Christian journey. Um, one of them is by Peter Kreeft and I might be, um, mispronouncing oh, yeah. his name. He's a Catholic. Yeah. Um, and he wrote how to be holy, the first steps in becoming a saint, which I think yes. is a really good book, uh, for just kind of like beginning, um, to think yeah. about Christianity. And, and then, um, if people are interested in the Orthodox church, I always recommend a book called welcome to the Orthodox church by Frederica Matthews green, because it goes through hmm. just all the little things that you'll see, 
in the church itself, like attending a liturgy, you know, okay, what are these icons about and these candles and this and that and the incense, but also goes into the beliefs and uh, of Orthodox Christians, um, basic things, how we view the cross and um, the resurrection and, and, and all of these things. And it's a really good, just kind of basic primer of Orthodox Christianity. Cool. Very interesting. Great, great resources there. Good, good recommendations. Thank you for that. Um, but Julie, yeah, I want to want to honor your time. I really appreciate the the wide reaching um, conversation that we had today. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for joining us. So before we go, of course, please plug away for any of your um, your writing, your work, and remind us of your Substack again, where you write. Yeah. So the Substack is. And I need to get this down because I'm just reviving it. It's uh, the Mystic Sisters, but the URL is just mysticsisters.substack.com. So that's me and my twin sister writing and podcasting and pontificating. Um, And then I'm on Twitter. My handle is Julie Writes. And um, if people are interested, I also write a a lot about media bias at allsides.com. And... um, and we have uh, media bias ratings that people can vote on there, which is kind of fun. Um, and that's kind of more my work in the realm of politics and journalism. Very cool. Thank you very much for joining us here today on California Liberty Project. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have you back in the future. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks very much. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.